Father, we come before you asking for help, help understanding what your word has to say. And things that would apply for this life, you give us instruction, and also things that apply to the next life. And we understand that the things that we do here weigh heavily on the rewards that we receive in heaven. And so we'd ask, Lord, not only would we be able to absorb the information that you give us here in Matthew chapter 6, but also keep it in the forefront of our minds as we just walk our daily lives and, and we do what we do, always being ever conscious that our lives in heaven await us. So we thank you for your instruction that you provide. We know that you can sharpen our memories and we ask that you would do so as we go through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When we get ready to take a trip somewhere, there's usually some kind of preparation that takes place. If you want the trip to be successful, you put in days, weeks, or even months planning for the trip. If you're preparing for a job, the same thing applies. You might work your whole life in preparation for a particular job. And it doesn't matter what age you are. All the experiences that you have up until the time that you apply for a job and get it and you actually get into it, all of those things work for you to be successful in that job that you may go to. Or also a marriage. There is preparation for a marriage. You observe other marriages. You go through a time of questioning. You sit down with somebody for premarital counseling. And they give you counsel what not to do and what to do how to conduct yourself in the marriage, and how not to conduct yourself in a marriage. In preparation for children, usually if a woman gets pregnant, she goes sees the doctor. She gets some prenatal vitamins, and they get a sonogram going, and they make sure that she's doing everything right, and they avoid traveling towards the third trimester, and just all those things that could be of detriment. There is preparation that you have to get involved in to make sure you don't make mistakes along the way. And also for going to school. Now, not so much the primary school, but if you're going to college, you want to prepare. You want to make sure you have all your ducks in a row, all the financial aid is ready to be given to you, and you've made your applications complete in all the different areas, and so we prepare. Now, in light of Matthew 6... Jesus gives us a teaching on how to prepare for heaven. And specifically, the three areas that we've been looking at is the area of giving, prayer, and fasting. Now, I've already covered the giving and what we're supposed to do here in this life and how we're supposed to do it regularly and generously and hilariously and all of those things that apply. In prayer, we're to be constantly in prayer. And that little paradox that exists with being constantly in prayer, we're also supposed to have our words be few before God because his throne is in heaven and we are here on earth. And then there's this idea of fasting. Now, all three of these things are given in such a way that we are not to conduct these works, these works of grace that have been commissioned for us to do since the foundations of the world. We are to do them in secret. We are not to do these particular works 
so everybody can see them so that they will pat us on the back thinking we're more spiritual. Remember I told you how the Jews, the leaders, the Pharisees, they would give and make an ostentatious showing and they would have everybody see how much they're giving and people would say, oh, how righteous they are, how they would pray. They'd go in the street corners, they'd raise their hands and they'd want everybody to look at them and see how holy they were. And then this thing with fasting, this idea that they would make their face look thin and gaunt and they would be suffering before the Lord. And the Lord said, don't do that. And we're going to pick it up in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so this is the third time he says, do these things in secret and your father will reward you. And this is what we're looking forward to in heaven. When we get to heaven, he's going to reward us. And of course, this is called the Bema Seat of Christ. And it is for those who are Christians, those who have confessed Christ, those who trust in him for, for salvation. We are not going to go there and be condemned and judged for all of our sins because our sins has been forgiven. But we are going to be given a reward at the Bema seat, kind of like the wreath in the Olympics that they used to have back in the time of Christ. They would give you a, a wreath around your head, and that was a crown. And we're going to talk about the five crowns which are given to us for the works that we do here. But this is all in preparation. So he says, give, pray, and fast, and do it this particular way so that the Lord will reward you in heaven. Otherwise, if you do it in a way for men to see and they give you the praise, you have your reward already. And we want to make sure that when we get to heaven, we have plenty of reward. Now, going on with this fasting, it's an act of total or partial abstinence from food for a limited period of time, usually undertaken for a moral or religious reason. That's the reason that they did it in Scripture. Judaism, the Day of Atonement, it's a public fast. It's a proclamation. People do not eat on that particular day. It's listed in Leviticus chapter 16 and Numbers chapter 29. The Day of Atonement, it's the day of fasting. And the withholding of food and or water and also the physical marital relationship. This is talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. That's the only reason there's to be any withholding in that area is for prayer and fasting for the Lord. And so the, the Father determined that we should have this instruction while we are here. Now, fasting, Jesus practiced it. There were times where he went without food in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil, asked, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I don't recommend anyone in here fast for 40 days and 40 nights. You'll probably be dead by the end of it, and I don't want that. The Lord had Jesus. He had sustenance from the Father. He didn't have to die. He willingly gave up his life, but Jesus practiced fasting. John the Baptist and the Pharisees practiced fasting because it's listed in the Old Testament. Luke chapter 5 verse 33 says, And they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And so he made this argument that while he's with them, the bridegroom is with them, they don't need to fast because the disciples were part of the church that was to come. 
And the nation of Israel practiced it as a whole. Judges chapter 20, verse 26. Then the Israelites, all the people went up to Bethel and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented birth offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. So it was a nationwide thing. We have that in this country. May 1st is the National Day of Prayer. And many people are encouraged to pray. Moses practiced it in Exodus chapter 34, verse 28. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread and drinking water. Of course, this is a foreshadowing for Jesus who would come and also fast for 40 days and 40 nights because Moses saved the Israelites at that time. God used him and there would be a savior to come, which was Jesus. Nehemiah practiced it. Ezra, King David, and Acts in the early church, they all practiced fasting. Now, if we were to take a poll on how many of us in here practice fasting, very few hands would go up. It's not something that we engage in all the time, especially when there's a Krispy Kreme donut and a McDonald's and the In-N-Out Burger and a, these nice... Re- we are just inundated with food everywhere. So what are the reasons that we would fast today? Of course, we look to the scripture to get those reasons. It could be a national crisis, a call for repentance, a national call for repentance. One of the books I was reading about the foundings of this country, the Puritans came over and when something would go wrong, they would end up fasting. At least the colony that survived, the first one to survive, they saw calamity come upon them and they fasted and prayed and they felt the Lord revealed to them that they were doing everything for themselves and not for the benefit of everyone else. And once they came to that realization after prayer and fasting, the Lord blessed it and it actually survived. The first colony survived here. So a national crisis could be taking place. Joel chapter 1 verse 14, it says there, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who lived in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And so Joel is calling for repentance for the nation. Then there could be a personal crisis. If you remember King David, he had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. There was a child that was conceived and the Lord told him after Nathan, the prophet had come in, the Lord told him that the child is going to die. And when the child was born, the child was sickly and looked like the child was not going to make it. And so David put on sackcloth, put ashes on his head. He was praying and fasting, calling out to the Lord. And he wanted the Lord to spare the life of the child. But the judgment had already been passed for the sin that he committed. Of course, he killed Uriah to have Bathsheba. And the man was just acting in a wicked fashion. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, clearly he had fallen into a state of sin. And so he was fasting to save the life of his son. And the Lord said no. And so sometimes the fasting, it is effective in that way. Sometimes it is not. It can also be for a sign of mourning. At the death of King Saul, the first king of Israel, the Israelites, they fasted because they were grieved. Now, I was very young at the time. Was it 1963 that Kennedy was assassinated? I was uh, very young, but I remember it. I remember the black and white television. I remember the casket being pulled by horses going down the street. And my mom had it on. We were in the front room and, and seeing that. And it was a crisis 
in this country. I remember that distinctly, even though I was about five years old, five or six years old. And, and so there is a time, like for instance, the day the Twin Towers came down. That would be a time for fasting, sign of mourning, calling out to the Lord to say, Lord, have your grace upon us, have your mercy upon us. And so that was practiced in the Old Testament as well. There could be a matter of grave seriousness, a, a decision that you were faced with. If you remember Queen Esther and Mordecai and the evil Haman that was taking place in the Old Testament, remember Mordecai came to Esther and told Esther through a third party what was uh, in the heart of Haman. Haman wanted to kill all the Jews. He hated Mordecai. He wanted to wipe out the Jews completely. And so Mordecai sent a messenger over to Esther and told Esther, you need to go to the king and you need to have the king intercede. And with the country back then, the nation back then, once they made a decree, it could not be reversed, which is kind of dumb. But that's what they did. You couldn't reverse it. And so it was also a decree that you couldn't approach the king unless the king wanted you. You couldn't just walk into his chamber and hope that he would talk to you. And if somebody did that and he put a scepter out to you, then you were able to approach the king. If he didn't do that, you were killed. And so she needed to go before the king to intercede for the nation, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, so that they would not be killed because of a decree that evil Haman had concocted to kill all the Jews in the land. And so she called upon Mordecai to fast, and all of her maids with her, they fasted as well, because she had three days to prepare herself to go see the king. And she said, if I die, I die. And if I don't, the Lord is going to be gracious. And so she went into the king and the king put a scepter out to her and he asked her, what would you like? And she told him the whole story. And so it's like the Lord is giving his favor when this fasting was taking place and the entire nation of Israel was spared because of it. Amen. Haman ended up getting hung on the, his own gallows that he was building for Mordecai, if you're familiar with the story. It can also be used in seeking the Lord for protection. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3, it says there, Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed, proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. They were worried that the Moabites, the Ammonites, were going to come against Israel and they were going to destroy Israel. And so he used it as a way to seek the Lord and have the Lord's favor and the Lord's direction. It can also be to humble oneself for the Lord's hand of blessing, that you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. You guys remember that song? It goes way back. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And it would be around Uh, that you would do. That's one of the ways to do it. You humble yourself by proclaiming a fast, at least for yourself or a group of people, that you can be in such a state to do things strictly for the Lord and nothing for yourself. It can also be just an act of worship that you deny yourself for the sake of the Lord. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. And there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. That was part of her worship. Uh, number eight, you, you can help 
or you want the help of the Lord. So you seek after him for help. This is done repeatedly in the Old Testament where the Israelites would go before the Lord or the king would or uh, the leaders of the Jews. They would go before the Lord to keep from being wiped out by their enemies. And so that's the reason that they fasted, to seek help from God. Also to show repentance or remorse. It, It can avert the Lord's judgment. If you fast and pray, the Lord may say, okay, I'm not any longer going to bring this disaster upon these people because see how they humbled themselves? There was a guy by the name of Jonah that was swallowed not by a whale, but by a big fish. And he went to the people of Nineveh, witnessed to them, and they received his witness, and they all fasted and prayed, and the Lord said he was going to condemn them and judge them and he averted that now later on years later it happened but they repented at that time and because they showed repentance and remorse it averted the lord's judgment upon them and then 10th the last one in making and implementing decisions really important decisions for instance are you going to move you should fast and pray To give you an example of this, what if I decided, that's it, I'm going to the Caribbean, I'm leaving, see ya, and I make the announcement today. By the way, I'm not. I'm staying right here. But what if I just did that and I didn't pray about it, I just said, I'm going, I'm leaving, I'm going to the Caribbean, I love it there, the blue water, white sand, hope you guys have a great time. And you would probably come up to me and say, did the Lord tell you to do this? Because if I move... It affects everyone in here. And I want to make sure I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it because the Lord wants me to. Now, if he wants me to, everything's fine. Everything's good. It's wonderful. It would be a sorrowful day, but it would all be good because the Lord has done it. And so if you decide to move or if you decide to get married, the same thing applies. You need to pray fast, ask the Lord, Lord, do you want me to do this? After all, this involves the rest of my life and maybe even having an effect in eternity and there's going to be children more than likely. What do you want me to do with this? Ask him. Repent if you need to repent. Pray fast. All of those things need to take place. So when we're making these decisions, or if you want to go to college somewhere, or if you want to change jobs and All of these things, major decisions for us in our lives, we want to make sure we're fasting, we're seeking after the Lord. Now, a fasting or fasting should be part of a Christian's life. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And I already read you this verse. Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. And so all the reasons that I gave you prior to this one, those are the reasons we fast. But as Christians, we should fast. Fasting should always be coupled with prayer. You don't just go on a diet. You don't just say, I'm not going to eat and I'm going to call it fasting, but I haven't spent any time in prayer. It's probably a good idea to pray before you fast, during the fast, and when you end the fast. Because it shows the Lord that you're committed to him, you're doing this for him, and whatever reason, if you're seeking wisdom from him, or you're repenting, or you, you want direction, all of those things, we are to fast 
and do it coupled with prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, we go on to this idea of storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not on earth. And remember, in the context that's given here, it's with giving, prayer, and fasting. If you do it right, the Lord will reward you when you get to heaven. Now, those are only three things that we would do to get rewards. There are many more things. Verse 19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what are the rewards when we get to heaven? Well, there's several kinds of rewards that are up there. One of the things that scripture talks about are these crowns that we're, we're going to get, we're going to receive. There are at least five crowns that you can receive. Now, crowns are just something that display honor. The Lord is going to honor those who do these particular things, and they will get one of these five crowns. The first crown, I'm just going to name the crowns, and I'll go back through them again. The five crowns are the crown of righteousness, an incorruptible crown, a crown of life, crown of glory and a crown of rejoicing now the first one the crown of righteousness it's all those who love the lord's appearing will get a crown of righteousness have you ever been paying attention to the world out there the governments the politics the morality that's out there and you go what in the world is going on Lord Jesus, come back. You know, this this is just getting almost unbearable to some degree. Well, all those who desire for the Lord to come back, and I think that's all who believe, they're going to get a crown of righteousness. They're going to be honored by the Lord with a crown of righteousness. Well, what about an incorruptible crown or an imperishable crown or a crown that does not fade? It is reserved for those who have disciplined their bodies and they exercise self-control according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. If you have become really good at separating your body for the Lord and you're doing what honors him according to the scriptures, he will give you an incorruptible crown, a crown that will not fade away. Well, what about a crown of life? It's those reserved for those who endure patiently through trials. James chapter 1 verse 12, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, this crown of life. And of course, I think we all get the crown of life, but there may be a distinction here over and above this honor of getting eternal life. So this crown of righteousness, incorruptible crown, a crown of life, then there's a crown of glory. And this is reserved from, or it's reserved for godly leaders who were examples to the flock. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Uh, one person I think will get this will be Billy Graham, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Finney. Uh, you can go through history and just pick out these guys who served the Lord, were a tremendous witness for him. They're going to get a crown of glory. And then there's a crown of rejoicing. And it is reserved for those who win souls, who go out and witness to somebody and they actually get this crown because they were bringing people into the kingdom. Now, this one 
it's available to everyone, but not everyone takes advantage of it. When was the last time you went and witnessed to somebody and told them about the plan of salvation where you said, you know, this is how you get to heaven. Now, in the men's group, we're memorizing this. It's Romans 10, 9, and 10, Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. We're going through, by the way, we've been having some great discussions about theological, moral, and ethical issues on Thursday nights. If you don't have an environment, it's a long-form environment, where we just sit down, similar to what we're going to do with the ladies. Uh, you would just go through and answer all the questions we can and come up with scenarios, and, and it's a great thing to do that. So when was the last time you sat down with somebody and really explained out the plan of salvation and offered them to receive the salvation. The Lord says, we ought to do this if we want the crown of rejoicing. So those five crowns, crown of righteousness, incorruptible crown, crown of life, crown of glory, crown of rejoicing. Now you know what is required to get one of those five crowns. Now how else might we store up for ourselves treasure in heaven, we already covered the giving, the praying, the fasting. If you do those things, the Lord's going to reward you. And if I do those things, he's going to reward me. Well, what about having a great reward? Don't you really like to win and win big? Um, we play this game called Boggle. Now, I don't always play, but in our household, this Boggle box comes out, and we shake this thing around, and words are on there, and, and, and also Uno. You guys ever play Uno? When you win big and Uno, there's laughing and screaming and hi, you know, something like that going on. And when you win big, it feels even better. You know, when you get the draw four, the change color, the draw two, you keep on putting those things out in Uno. Don't you just love that when you win big and then you cause somebody else to have all those extra cards at the end? Same thing with Boggle. If you win big and Boggle and you have all these words, you get all the, the points and you win big. It feels great to win big. So what do you have to do to win big, get a big reward in heaven, over and above everything else? Well, this is it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He repeats this. In Luke chapter 6, verse 22, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. And so this idea that if you want a fantastic reward in heaven, you place yourself out there being a witness for Christ and when you endure the persecution that comes, you understand that you will be rewarded greatly. Also in Hebrews chapter 10, this is something that happened to the first century believers. Remember those, this is verse 32, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. 
You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And so the promise for us is if we are suffering for the sake of Christ, our reward will be head and shoulders above all else who are up there. Now, Daryl, do you have that map? I want you to look at this map here. The colors that are the darkest are the areas of the world where people are currently suffering the most persecution throughout the world. That is Iran, Iraq, and if you go down to Africa, you see Sudan. That's right in the middle. It's number five. Is that eight? It's number eight right there. There's Sudan, there's South Sudan, there's Uganda below that. And so you can see where the greatest amount of suffering and what country has been in the news lately that we're dealing with as the United States to get them to change their ways. North Korea. Look at North Korea. North Korea is way up on the right. They are number one in persecution of Christians. And it is brutal what these people have to suffer. All the other countries there that are kind of white, they are not having any kind of persecution. But if you notice down at the bottom there in the circle, what country is right below us? Mexico. There's actually actually persecution of Christians in Mexico. It's right on our border. And there are maps similar to this. They have a little bit different makeup of which countries are worse and which ones are not. Is this the open doors one? Does it say open doors on there? And they keep track of this stuff. And we live in such a secure environment, we think, wow, it won't happen here. Let me ask you, those who take a moral stand on issues or ethical issues in this country, are they now being persecuted for those stands, either moral or religious? You know that guy who won that uh, cake baking thing that he wouldn't bake for the gay couple he's being sued again by the state of colorado because he won't bake a cake for somebody else there and and the supreme court what was it nine zero said you don't have to bake the cake and now they're going after him again and by the way this is leftism that's what that is it's not liberalism it's leftism where the world would come in and force you to submit remember obamacare and hobby lobby They wanted Hobby Lobby to pay for the abortifacents and said, you have to do this. And they said, but it's against my religious conviction. The persecution is coming. I I can promise you it will come in this country. I can promise you our state of affairs today are going to get worse. Now, I'm an optimist, but I read the tea leaves, so to speak. Actually, I just read the scripture. But you understand what I'm talking about. It is going to happen. There is going to be a change. The pendulum is going to swing back. And when it swings back, you think you're a gun control advocate and you're a Christian and you have the right to do that and protect, it is eventually going to be taken out. Now, will it be next year? I don't think so. But it is coming. Your religious worship that you are involved in, do you think it's going to be attacked? It already is being attacked. I was watching trailers. I like to watch trailers for new movies. There's a movie coming out of, I forget the actual term for it. It's where they take somebody who has gone into the gay lifestyle and try to remove the gay lifestyle from them and have them transition back to being straight. 
they're making a major motion picture about that and how the Christians are just terrible for trying to convert them back, to transition back to being heterosexual and not homosexual. And that's all of Hollywood, that's all of the media, that's where it's going. And so right now it's wonderful. And this is the reason we should fast and pray and give. Because the Lord will reward us for resisting the evil that is out there. And I'm not talking about beating people over the head. I'm simply talking about fighting the battle with the spiritual tools of warfare that we have been given. Now with that, I want to read something to you. Now it's going to take a minute or two to read this. And this comes out of Christianity today. But there are people that have borne the, the weight of persecution throughout history. And the people in these countries, on the maps that you just saw, they're burned alive. Uh, there was a movie that I was talking to Patty and the worship team about before we came in here. The movie Silence. Now, I saw it on the way to Cambodia on a trip. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Now, I don't know what it's rated, but uh, and there is violence, a lot of violence in it. But it's about these Catholic missionaries. One missionary was Liam Neeson. He went over to Japan, and I think this was in the uh, 19th century. It could have been earlier, but he went over to Japan as a Catholic missionary. And he ended up denouncing, recanting his Christian faith and following the ways of the Japanese and Buddhism. And another missionary went over later to find out what happened to him. And he also ended up recounting, uh, recanting. And it describes the persecution that actually took place for the Christians who would be converted in villages. How they would kill them. How they would put them in these wicker uh, wraps and they'd take them out in the ocean and they would sink them in the ocean while they were alive. They would kill them. These types of things are still going on in these other countries. This is what will get them an eternal reward. Now, Please do not misunderstand. I'm not telling you to sign up so that you can go get martyred. I'm not telling you that. But it is happening. This persecution just takes place. If you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted for your faith. And there's a person I remember from history. Her name was Blandina. Blandina was a slave of a wealthy uh, Christian And she professed faith in Christ. And I want to read you a story about this. It reads, The bloodthirsty mob in the amphitheater had never seen such courage. People were astonished at the slave girl's victorious cry, even in the midst of her pain and suffering. I am a Christian, and there is nothing vile done by us. Even though the crowd detested these Christians, They had to admit that never had a woman endured so much and so terrible tortures. It was the year 177 in Lyons, Gaul, which is modern France. Christianity had first come to Lyons over 25 years earlier when Polycarp of Smyrna, that's an area of Turkey, had sent Pontianus, excuse me, Pothenus, Pothenus, as a missionary to Gaul. Pothenus had diligently established a church of Christ in Lyons and nearby veins. As the church grew, spiritual resistance began to mount. The persecution against Christians began. Christians were shut out of businesses and houses. They endured all kinds of shame and personal injuries. 
mobs formed to beat, stone, and rob the Christians. When believers were arrested and examined by the city authorities, they boldly confessed their allegiance to Christ. They were imprisoned to await the arrival of the governor to the region. Some of the non-believing servants of the Christians were also seized. These servants feared being tortured and devised all sorts of false accusations against the Christians, such as they are practicing cannibalism, incest, and other shameful practices. Such accusations only enrage the mob even more. August 1st was a, whole, was a holiday to celebrate the greatness of Rome and the emperor. The governor was expected to show his patriotism by sponsoring entertainment for the whole city. It was, an ex, it was expensive to hire gladiators, boxers, and wrestlers. It would be a lot cheaper to torture these Christians as part of the holiday entertainment. The Christians were confined in the darkest and most awful part of the prison. Many of them suffocated there. Some were placed in stocks. Others were placed in a hot iron seat where their flesh was burned. This was literally a human barbecue where the victims were chained onto a grate over burning coals. An example of this barbaric torture instrument can be seen today in the Archaeological Museum at Lyons. Even a 92-year-old bishop was tortured. It seemed impossible that any could live having been tortured so cruelly. Yet they were strengthened by the Lord and they exhorted and encouraged each other in their faith. The 92-year-old bishop of Lyons died in his prison cell two days after his torture at the judgment seat. That cell was, or, excuse me, that cell too can still be visited today in Lyon. It is about the size of a home electric dishwasher. So cramped, he could not even have stood up straight. Sanctus, a deacon in vain, stood firm in his faith, even after red-hot plates were fastened to the most tender parts of his body, and he was one complete wound and bruise. He was an example for others, showing that nothing is fearful where the love of the Father is, and nothing is painful where there is the glory of Christ. After enduring torture, some of the Christians were taken to the amphitheater where wild beasts would devour them to entertain the crown. Among the group was a slave girl, Blandina, who had already endured every imaginable torture and cruelty. Blandina was suspended on a stake and exposed to the wild beast because she appeared to be hanging on a cross and because of her intense prayers, she inspired the other Christians. When they looked at her, they were reminded of Christ who was crucified for them and that everyone who suffered for the glory of Christ would enjoy eternal fellowship with the living God. None of the beasts touched Blandina at the time and she was taken down from the stake and cast into prison. The Christians believed God had preserved her for the contest for other contests, so her victory over the evil spiritual forces might be greater. On the last day of the contest in the amphitheater, Blandina was again brought in. A boy about, with this boy, Ponticus, a boy of about 15. Every day they had been brought to witness the sufferings of others and pressed to deny their faith and swear by idols. Ponticus died first and Blandina remained the last. She had encouraged many others and saw them go on before her to Jesus. Now she had 
ready or she was ready to hasten after them. She faced her death rejoicing as if being called to a marriage feast rather than wild beast. The report stated after the scourging, after the wild beast, after the roasting seat, she was finally enclosed in a net and thrown before a bull. And having been tossed about by the animal, but feeling none of the things which were happening to her on account of her hope and firm hold upon what had been entrusted to her and her communion with Christ, she also was sacrificed. The bodies of the witnesses were exposed for six days. They were burned to ashes and thrown into the Rhone River. The bodies of those who had suffocated in prison were thrown to the dogs and guards were stationed to prevent the remaining Christians from burying them. The pagans hoped to prevent even the hope of the resurrection of the Christians. That's just one story out of all the stories. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it talks about the persecution of the Christians. And there are publications today like the Voice of the Martyrs. People that are suffering today. But what do they get for this suffering? A great reward in heaven. So what other things are there that will get us reward or loss of reward? The biggest thing that will keep reward from coming our ways is doing things for self. Putting yourself up there. It's like the giving, the praying, the fasting. Doing for other men to see so that they might give us glory or honor or praise. God says don't do that. So whatever we do in secret, he will reward us. Also, if you give a cup of water to anyone, even a little child or an adult, and you do it in the name of Christ, you'll get rewarded for that. Also, things that are listed here, serve wholeheartedly as if you are serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And so the point is, send on ahead your reward. How long do we live here? My life is two-thirds over. Our lives in here are mostly over. You know, we're not small children anymore and we're going to meet the Lord and we're going to be at the Bema seat. So are we preparing like we're going to school or going to college or getting married or whatever the case might be? We want to make sure we're preparing for what lies ahead. If we are believers, we will have reward and the Lord wants our reward to be great. My encouragement to you this morning is Work for the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It does not get you saved doing the good things. The good things that we do are a result, an outflow of the salvation that we have. If we say, you know, it's just been tough for me in the past and I've done so much and I'm just not going to do anything anymore. At least right now, I'm just taking a break. Did Jesus ever take a break? He didn't take a break. You know, we just need to get up on the saddle. And it's hard. And I will tell you, even this last week, I was telling my wife a little bit of discouragement. You know, I'm discouraged about this or discouraged about that. She goes, I know. And we had a pity party. And then I got over it. You know, it's like we're carrying on for the Lord. He's the one that we're supposed to keep in mind. He's the one that we're pressing forward to. And we're supposed to love our enemies. And we're supposed to be willing to endure the persecution which is there. And by God's grace, we can do it. But we need to prepare. Please don't say, ah, let someone else do it. Ah, let somebody else go to that baptism. Ah, let somebody else clean the church. It's, yeah, whatever it is. And I'm not saying this so that you will walk out of here with a tremendous amount of guilt. The Lord's calling. 
He wants to let us know that we don't want this guilt just carrying on our shoulders. We can be free from all that guilt. He, he, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he wants us to have the reward. And may you be richly blessed with gold, silver, and precious stone when you get there. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunities that you give us to serve. And we know that there is no guilt involved in that. But you invite us to share in the blessing. So Lord, help us not to look at others in a a condemning way or towards their inadequacies, for we are all fallen. We are all sinners. But Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and the crowns that you will give to us and the reward that you will provide. Help us in the areas that we are weak and strengthen us even more in the areas where we are already strong. And may we work for your kingdom. And we thank you for the salvation that you have given to us. We bless you for it. In Jesus' name, and the church said.